Matthew chapter 1 today um, as we begin a sermon series on the Christmas story. This week we'll look at the angel appearing to Joseph. Next week we'll see Gabriel the angel appear to Mary in Luke chapter 1. The following week we'll look at the shepherds and angels in Luke chapter 2. And we'll finish up January 1st looking in Matthew chapter 2 as the wise men come uh, to visit Jesus. But today we're beginning in Matthew chapter 1 as we examine the Christmas story together. Uh, Matthew was one of the 12 disciples, and so he followed Jesus day and night for three years. So Matthew was in a great position to observe the things and learn the things that he writes about in his gospel. So he has great credibility on these things. And as he writes, if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew seems very concerned to show that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament promised would come, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one to whom the whole Old Testament pointed. And as we look together at Matthew, I also hope, and I've been praying, that we would all see how the Christmas story makes a difference in our lives today. So let me read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. I want to pray for us. And then we will dig in and look at the text together. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Hear now God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here in response to your call to worship, and we are now all here around looking into your word. And we claim your promise now that when you send forth your word, it does not return to you void, but it accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would accomplish your purposes in us, even today, even in this place, even through the preaching of the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We typically read the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2. That's where you read where a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And so Mary and Joseph head to Bethlehem and uh, she gives birth and lays the, wraps him in swaddling clothes, lays him in a manger because there's no room for them in the inn. You see a preview of the kids' Christmas show tonight, no room in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch of their flocks. But all that is Luke chapter 2. And we're, we typically read that at Christmas. 
So as we come here to Matthew chapter 1, we read, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So we're talking about the birth story of Jesus, but because we don't typically look in Matthew, this gives us a fresh view, a fresh perspective. And my prayer has been that we would all be a little more fresh and a little more open to hear what the scripture has to teach us as we come to Matthew's gospel, because we don't typically look at it. So let's just take a few moments and walk through this text together. We started in verse 18, where we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now we don't use the word betrothed very much in our culture. Uh, And if you're not sure what that means, there's a footnote in the ESV, the translation that I'm using, that explains this means legally pledged to be married. And for us, in our culture, if we think of somebody pledged to be married, we think of engagement. But this Jewish idea of betrothal is something much more than our idea of engagement. Under Jewish law, betrothal was undertaken about a year before the wedding. And it was a pledge to Mary that was legally binding. You had entered into a legal agreement by this point in time. Our engagements typically are not legally binding. Sometimes we sign a prenuptial agreement. But our engagements are not typically legally binding. But under Jewish law, betrothal was legally binding. And it could only be ended by death, in which case the woman would be a widow, the man would be a widower, or by divorce. And those were the only ways you could end a betrothal. So it's much more serious, it's much more binding than our idea of engagement. During the betrothal period, the woman remained in her father's house, and her father was her guardian until her father gave her to her husband at the wedding. But the groom was already considered to be her husband. You see there in verse 19, Joseph is referred to as her husband. So this idea of betrothal is much more serious, it's much more than our idea of engagement. And look what happens there. So Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now this was very serious. In the Old Testament, the penalty for this type of unchastity was death by stoning. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 22. But by this time, the Romans ruled over Israel, and they did not allow capital punishment for merely unchastity. And so the remedy was divorce. And you can read how that takes place in Deuteronomy chapter 24. But this idea, while they're betrothed, before they came together, Mary being found to be with child... This would bring intense shame on everybody concerned in the situation. It would bring shame on the woman and her family who must not have raised her right or she didn't do the right thing or her family did not watch over her enough. And her family would probably prefer her death to this kind of defilement, which probably meant she would never marry. That's the way they would respond in a shame-based culture like this one. There would also be much shame on the husband, the man in this betrothal, because either he was with her before he was supposed to be, which makes him impatient, a character flaw, and immoral, Or, if he's not the one that got her pregnant, 
then it would be some kind of reflection on him, that he was deficient in some way, that she would have to look outside the relationship, that um, it would be a sign of his poor judgment in selecting a wife who was not a good one or a poor selection by his family if they had made the decision that they didn't uh, betroth their son to the right kind of person because she was not faithful to him. And it would bring shame to everyone in the situation for the poor choices and the, res- and the results that happened. So as a result, we read in verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, watch this. Now, this is interesting. Being a just man... And unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Mary had not claimed that she was raped or forced in any way, and Joseph knew that he had not been with her. So naturally, Joseph assumes that Mary had been unfaithful, and so he was going to divorce her for unfaithfulness. But notice, he was going to divorce her quietly. Now, why would he divorce her quietly? Well, verse 19 says, because he's a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So he's not divorcing her because he's a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her. I want you to think about that with me. You see, it was Joseph's right legally at this point in time to not divorce her quietly, but to have a public trial which would allow Joseph to recover the dowry, the total assets that she was bringing into the marriage. Even if he didn't marry her, he could still recover those economic damages that he had suffered. Also, in a shame-based culture, there's always the court of public opinion. And so Joseph could save face by proving up, by showing, by giving the details that it wasn't him who was impatient or immoral, But this was her fault, her family's fault. It would allow him to save face. But notice Joseph was willing to forfeit that kind of divorce and to only divorce her quietly, the text says. Deuteronomy 24 explains a bill of divorce would be presented in writing before two witnesses and that would be the end of it. Why does he choose to divorce her quietly Instead of something more public. Well, the text tells us, Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Your translation may say a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame. Now, for us, we sometimes think that justice and righteousness would demand that people be put to shame that we get what's rightfully ours and that we set the record straight. Sometimes we equate those two things, don't we? Notice the Bible doesn't seem to be doing that here. And that's because the idea of justice, the idea of being just, the idea of being righteous includes the idea of mercy. It includes the idea of graciousness, of giving someone else better than what it is they deserve. I think a psalm 37 and verse 21, where we're told the righteous give generously. They give better than what somebody else deserves. So in our own mind, as we come to the scripture and we read about something being just or a person being righteous or specifically God being just or God being righteous, let's not pit the idea of justice and righteousness on one hand 
against the idea of mercy and extending grace on the other hand. We tend to do that, don't we? But that's not the way the Bible looks at it. The Bible says that he was gracious, that he was merciful, that he was not demanding all he was entitled to because he was a just man, because he was a righteous man. What about us? Perhaps someone has wronged you. Maybe you've been hurt economically in the current economy that we've got. Maybe you feel like you've been treated unfairly in the court of public opinion. And deep within our hearts, all we want is to get our just desserts. To get what we're entitled to. And there is an aspect of justice with it. But but do you hear there's also a darker side to that? There's a sort of, I want them to get their comeuppance, and I'm going to be the one who makes sure that they do. The scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And sometimes we think vengeance is ours, and it's not. I guess my question for people who are followers of Jesus, for people who want to be righteous and just, my question is, are we willing to let that go? Are we willing to say, Jesus is my righteousness, not what people think about me, and it is enough for me that Jesus knows, and that's enough for me. And I don't have to demand that this be made right or demand my righteousness because I trust the Lord to look after me. Read the Psalms, because it often reads that way. Oh, he wishes some bad things happen to people. He'll say, Lord, I wish that you would just bash their heads and that their babies would have their heads bashed against rocks. I mean, he says crazy. I wish all their teeth would be knocked out. He says some crazy stuff. But he says, Lord, I wish you would do that. Not that we as just or righteous people would take that upon ourselves. May the Lord make us just people, righteous people, who show mercy and extend grace. So Joseph is going to quietly divorce her, but he doesn't have all the information. It's one of the reasons why vengeance is not ours, because we often don't have all the information reserved for an all-knowing God. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Let me stop right there. As he considered these things, behold. I hope you're using a translation that has behold in there because many modern translations don't have that little word behold. But it's really important because it's used over 200 times in the New Testament. Matthew uses it over 60 times. And it's something used to draw our attention. It's something that is used for emphasis. Typically something crazy or unusual follows behold. Something you wouldn't be expecting. So when you see behold, you need to be thinking, oh my goodness, something crazy is about to happen. When our daughter Elizabeth was little and used to be holding her and I'd be talking to somebody and she was trying to get my attention because she wanted something, she would grab our faces and turn it towards something and then point to what it was she wanted. That's what behold does. 
Matthew's grabbing our face and turning it towards what he wants us to see. And as we get to verse 20, he says, Behold, oh my goodness, something crazy, what is it? An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Yes, that's the kind of stuff that comes after behold. Behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. What does the, the angel say? Joseph, watch this now, son of David. We tend to blow by that and get to do not fear to take Mary as your wife, and that's an important part of the story. But Joseph, son of David, did you know that the title son of David is exclusively used in the rest of the New Testament? It's exclusively used to describe Jesus. This is the only place that son of David is not used in reference to him. Now, that's interesting. Why would the angel say, Joseph, son of David? Well, this alerts Joseph to what his part is in the unfolding plan of God. You see, Joseph is a legal heir of David. And so when the angel says, Joseph, son of David, he immediately knows, oh, the angel's about to talk to me about Messiah kind of stuff. Because the Messiah was to come in the line of David. You saw it in Isaiah 9, our call to worship, that he will reign on the throne of his father, David, right? And that he would establish justice and have those titles that we read about. So when he says, son of David, Joseph's saying, okay, this is Messiah stuff. And the angels say, you are to bestow this honor of being in the legal heir of David, in the line of David, on Jesus. And how is he supposed to do that? You take Mary home to be your wife, complete the marriage in order to establish Jesus in the line of David. Wait a minute, I didn't get her prayer. I, I, I know, but you're supposed to take Mary home. What's everybody going to think? What are they going to say? We're going to be disowned by our family. They're going to think, I, I know, take Mary home as your wife. And she's going to have a son, and I want you to name him Jesus. You see, the naming also indicated that Joseph would acknowledge Jesus as his son. And that would bring him into the line of David. Think about that song that we sing from Isaiah 43, right? Where we quote God of us saying, I have called you by name. You are what? Mine. Right, so the naming of the child, and specifically Joseph giving the name, means that he's accepting Jesus as his own, which would bring Jesus into the line of David. Now, I know some people speculate that Mary was in the line of David as well, and I'll let you chase that rabbit on Google another time besides now, Mary's genealogy, okay? But clearly, the angel is saying, this is what I want you to do. And if you're worried about, does that really make him in the line of David, adoption often had been the basis for someone becoming royalty or ascending to the throne. It was a legally recognized thing in the day. And if you look, many of Rome's emperors came to power through adoption. Nero, a lot of them at this time period. You can look that up on Google as well. But let me press on. Verse 20, he says, Behold, an angel appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Do you see Matthew emphasizing that? He had set that up in verse 18, right? Before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And then when he speaks to Joseph, what is in her is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In verse 23, when he quotes the prophet, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive 
and bear a son. When we recited the Apostles' Creed today, we recited that we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. It's become fashionable in our day to doubt the virgin birth. I'm not really sure why, other than A, it's not scientific, as if God could not intervene in his creation in any way he decided to do so. If you speak the world into existence, I think you can speak a baby into a woman's womb. And secondly, the objection seems to be that in the Old Testament prophecy, here in Isaiah 7, behold, the virgin shall conceive. Lisa and I were talking to somebody in our driveway. We were having, I don't know why we have theological debates here, but we were talking with a fella there in our driveway. And he said, you know, really the word here is just Alma, which can also mean young woman. And it wasn't until later that they attached significance trying to make Jesus' birth something greater than it was by saying that she was born of a virgin. Like, well, it's true, Alma, that Hebrew word for young girl, can mean young girl or virgin. That's true, (laughs) because in that day, almost all young girls were virgins, right? That's why you could use them interchangeably. But if you go back and read in the context, God is giving a sign to a king of something that's going to happen. And if you say this will be the sign to you that a young girl will have a baby, that's not much of a sign. Young girls have babies every day, right? What kind of sign is that? And notice he also says what? Behold, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Behold means something surprising is going to happen. A young girl having a baby is not surprising. Behold, a virgin will conceive and have a son. There's a sign for you that something's going to happen. And it's consistent with the use of the word behold. The prophets had foretold that the Holy Spirit would be very active in the day when the Messiah was to come. So this makes a lot of sense, right? And is it really so hard to believe that God is capable of intervening miraculously in what is, after all, his creation? Or as J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, when he writes in the chapter, God Incarnate, he says, if Jesus is God in the flesh, then we certainly might expect fresh acts of creative power to be displayed in his coming into this world, his life in it, and his exit from it. The angel goes on in verse 21 and says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. He says, You shall call his name Jesus. This is kind of the Greek form of a Hebrew name, the Greek form Jesus. We see Jesus, joy of men's, man's desiring this time of year. Jesus is the Greek name that's given in the text. It's from the Hebrew Yeshua, Joshua, which means the Lord saves. So there's a word play going on, right? He said, you're going to call his name Yeshua, the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sin. That's the word play that's taking place. Now, it's interesting. If he had just said, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, period, then we would have, we, we, we would, it would be a little bit uh, harder to know exactly what the angel was saying he was going to do because the word save can refer to saving people from physical danger. Matthew will use the word that way later in Matthew chapter 8. When the storm comes up and the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is asleep, they say, Lord, save us. And they're talking about from this storm, from dying. In fact, they say, we're going to die. Don't you care? 
It's sometimes used of physical healing from a disease. Matthew uses it that way in Matthew chapter 9. Sometimes it's used of physical death. Matthew uses it that way in Matthew chapter 24. The popular hope of the day was that the Messiah would come and would save in the sense of a national political liberator, that he would throw off the yoke of Roman rule, that the Romans won't be in power anymore. And that's easy to believe if you're thinking his name's going to be Yeshua, Joshua. And what Joshua had done is led God's people into the promised land and conquered the people that were there so that the land was theirs and they were independent. So it would be easy to believe that when you heard that he'll be called Yeshua or Joshua. But look what Matthew says. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Matthew doesn't use the word sin very often, but he uses it here in order to be clear, in order to clarify what kind of Messiah Jesus is. Because the people were hoping for a military leader to come and throw off the yoke of Roman rule. And Matthew clarifies, no, Jesus, this Messiah, will save you from your sins. This is where the Christmas story is important for us and impacts our lives. We're not being ruled by the Romans. Oh, but we're slaves of sin, aren't we? When we want to do what is right, we don't do what is right. We end up doing the wrong things that we don't want to do. We're a slave to sin. The biblical view is that the basic cause of all our problems is sin. So this verse orients us to the fundamental purpose for Jesus coming, to save his people from their sin. A national political, to save his people from, to make the economy right, to save his people from their sins. And it tells us the nature of his reign as king on the throne of David. He's going to roll back the effects of sin and death and all the things that entered the world as a result of sin entering the world. As we'll sing in a week or so, joy to the world that it comes as far as the curse is found. This original audience thought their biggest problem was the rule of the Romans in their life and all that flowed from it. But Matthew's telling them that their biggest problem, what they really need to be saved from, is their own sin. What about us? What about this audience? I don't know why you're here today or what you are dealing with. For many of us, we do face struggles in the economy with inflation, People losing their job, money is tight this time of year as we're expected to spend more and we have less. Maybe you have a physical ailment, maybe you do have health issues, maybe it's relational with people in your church or people in your family, with a parent or with a child or with a grandchild. And those are the problems that we bring to Jesus today. Listen, and those are important things and the Apostle Peter does say, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And it's okay to bring these things. But listen to me. Your biggest problem is that your sin estranges you from the God who made you. 
Your biggest problem is the sin in your heart and in your life that corrupts who you were made to be. So that you're not all that God created you to be because of the ways that you sin and the ways that you have been sinned against and the effects of sin in this world. But the promise of Christmas, the way this story is such good news for us, is that there is one who has come in order to save his people from their sin. Notice how definite it is. You know, there's a lot of gray in this world. (laughs) Not right here. Hey, what does he say? You're going to call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. The Apostle Matthew says all this, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It's the standard formula we see in Matthew over and over again. If you read, he'll say this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said. Because this group that he's writing to was looking for a Messiah to come. And so over and over again, Matthew is saying to them, this took place to fulfill what the prophet He's saying, Jesus is the one you're looking for. Jesus is the one you're longing for. Jesus is the one you can't wait for. I don't know what it is you face today, but I, who am not an apostle, stand in this apostolic tradition and I say to you, whatever it is that's the deepest longing of your heart, Jesus is the one you're looking for. Jesus is the one you are longing for. Jesus is the one you can't wait for. And if you want to learn more about that, and you want to tease that out more, let's, let's talk. Let's go to lunch. You can talk to any of our officers. We would love to talk with you about that. One other thing I want to look at with you in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. People get wrapped up about this. It was like, wait a minute, I thought you said you call him Jesus. And now you're saying he's going to be called Emmanuel. Isaiah, who had the prophecy, contradicts Matthew, and so that's why I don't believe any of this stuff, right? Well, hold on now. I think what this is saying is that Emmanuel, that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, that that's his role as the Messiah. His role was to bring God's presence to his people. But his name, what he would be called, would be Jesus, the Lord saves. So one of them is his role, and one of them is his actual name. Now, you may listen to that and you say, okay, you're just making excuses now, right? You're just making this stuff. You're just saying whatever you have to say to make this stuff consistent because that's what preachers do. You're kind of invested in this. You're dependent on this to, for this thing to work. Well, perhaps. I have pushed all my chips all in on this being true. <laughs> that's true. But I think you understand this distinction because I hear you use it all the time. You see, many of you call me Pastor Scott. Well, now, you know Pastor's not my name, right? My mama didn't give that to me. It's not written on my birth certificate. 
What you're doing is you're referring to me by my role, by my function, what it is that I am to do. I pastor. I'm a shepherd. I pastor people. And you put that right alongside my name that my mama did give me, which is Scott. There's the same thing. His role, his function is God with us. His name is Jesus. The Lord saves the role his mom and his dad gave him. Let's close by looking at Joseph's response. I feel like it's so instructive for us. Look at verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Wow, there was some tea in Jesus' family. Man, it was kind of dysfunctional, messed up, and sometimes we don't recognize that. Maybe you really sense the dysfunction of your family at this season. Hey, listen, Jesus knows that struggle. He knows where you live. But notice that Joseph believed God and he obeyed God. You see, I don't believe that Joseph would have obeyed if he didn't already have a strong faith in God. I don't know about you, but I would wake up from that dream if I didn't believe in God, and I would say, wow, that was a weird dream. My subconscious is obviously dealing with this divorce thing, and I dream this crazy thing that I'm seeing heavenly beings. Man, I need to get out of this situation. I'm going to go file for divorce, right? But evidently, Joseph had a faith in God that already existed, And he already believed that God could do the impossible, that God spoke the worlds into existence, that God was all-powerful. And so if an angel from God says, God put this baby in this virgin's womb, then he could believe that because he already had a relationship with God and he knew that God could do what is naturally impossible. And it's remarkable that Joseph then goes and obeys from having this dream. Think about it. In a shame-based culture where your honor is of great value, Joseph was willing to obey God even though it cost him his reputation. When Joseph took Mary as his wife, after he learned that she was pregnant, then most people would assume that he must have gotten her pregnant or else he would have divorced her for being unfaithful so most people assume that he's impatient and immoral and that she is as well so joseph played his part in advancing god's kingdom by believing god and obeying his command even when it cost him now you may be here today and you wonder i wonder what my part is in advancing God's kingdom. We talk about that here a lot at Redeemer. And I want you to know that we play the exact same part in the story, right? We play our part the same way Joseph did, by believing God and obeying his commands, even when it costs us. Even when it's not as profitable economically. Even when it's not what the culture would say that we should do. That we will still believe God's word as revealed in the scripture and we will obey. That's the way the kingdom is advanced. What did Jesus say about making disciples in Matthew 28? 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The same promise that the angel gave that he's God with us. He continues to be with us by his spirit. I don't know what you face today, but I want you to know God is here with us. And you can have a relationship with him and experience and feel his presence and his empowerment in a real way. And that's what Christmas offers us. What a privilege we have. As we see God advancing his kingdom, we have an opportunity to play a part in advancing his kingdom as well. Not to earn his favor, but out of gratitude for what he has done for us and loving us so much that he was willing to give his only son to come here and be mistreated, misunderstood, to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died so that we can be in this family of faith. Let's pray and ask God and thank God for doing that for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you would give us grateful hearts for what you have done for us. I pray that your spirit would come and convict us of ways we don't obey or are tempted not to. And I pray that you would apply the finished work of Christ to our hearts that will cover our sin, to save us from our sin, that we might be a people who walk in your ways and follow your commands even when it's hard, even when it's not convenient, even when it hurts to do so. Please come and do that in us, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.